the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi there, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pion. Um, today's episode, we're going to be leaving California. We're actually going to Colorado, where we're going to be speaking with Danny Mersloat, who is a grower and the founder of Alpenstash. Uh, they do craft cannabis in Colorado, and it's just really nice to get a, a different view from our California lens. This is something that we're going to be trying to do with the show more often is get out to other states and see what's going on there. So, Danny, we're so happy to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and, and getting into it, some of us have had early experiences with cannabis before we started working in it. Others have not. Did you have an early experience with cannabis? When was the first time that you smoked? Uh, so the first time I smoked was I was 15, uh, freshman in high school. And I definitely had some early experiences, earlier experiences with cannabis. Um, I smoked here and there in high school and then a little bit afterwards, but uh, I Sometime in my mid-20s, I had pretty much stopped, and it had been uh, a number of years before I ingested again, uh, and that time was for, uh, I began again for medical use. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of weeks after I turned 21, uh, I developed uh, pretty bad stomach pain or, or pain in my kind of my abdomen. Uh, went to the hospital, was admitted for four or five days. Uh, when I left there, uh, I was still in pain, and uh, the doctors didn't know what was going on at that time, so they gave me a script for Vicodin. Uh, and I went through a battery of tests uh, after being released and still uh, was in pain, and still they gave me uh, Vicodin was sort of their answer. Uh, eventually, when the uh, gastroenterologists didn't know what was going on, they referred me to a pain specialist. Uh, on my first appointment with that guy, he said to me, you know, we can continue with the Vicodin while we figure out what's going on, or we could, you know, try to control your pain a little bit better. Uh, and so that's the route I went, which turned out to be fentanyl. So I pretty quickly was put on uh, very high doses of that. Uh, again, this was in the early-ish 2000s, and so I don't think uh, at least I had no idea what fentanyl is, and I don't think it was as widely known. I don't think that would happen today. But that quickly turned into uh, a, sort of a, a medical and, and opiate haze that I, I was in as I was trying to get testing done and treatments and various injection therapies. Um, they never found out what was wrong, and their answer was more and more pain medication. Uh, so after a few years, I was pretty... Uh, sedentary in life and just really in a medical uh, funk and in an opiate haze and was pretty, well, I would say was actually very stagnant in life. And in that time frame, I developed a nerve impingement issue, which required a few surgeries, and then a non-cancerous base of skull tumor, which required a pretty major surgery. So I just was, you know, for lack of a better term, pretty drugged out for a number of years. Uh, I had nowhere uh, to really go and, and was really struggling to function. Um, I was on a bunch of prescriptions to control the side effects of the opiates and then prescriptions to control the side effects of those and so on. And really, uh, like I said, I didn't really know where I was going. Uh, my dad suggested that I try medical cannabis and I followed him up on that. And uh, lo and behold, that, uh, 
began to heal me and really helped not only with my physical pain, but my emotional pain and plugging me back into life. The first purchase I made came with a free clone. So I began to grow uh, as a form of therapy and everything kind of happened from there. What was the first form of cannabis that gave you relief? Yeah, I smoked my, uh, yeah, I smoked. Okay. Uh, pretty quickly, I would say within a, a couple of weeks of ingesting that way, I, I moved on to uh, reach out to edibles. I, I had had some negative experiences uh, before this time and, you know, problems with paranoia. I had some issues with nausea and vomiting. Um, and so I was really, I, I went really slow. Yeah, low and slow is the way to go. That's what I always say when I'm when I'm working with my clients because we, there are so many horror stories that we hear about edibles. People are afraid of using them because of it, but it, there really is a method to finding your sweet spot for dosage. Um, I know for myself, I had used cannabis off and on. Um, in high school and in college, but I really, really didn't understand the kind of relief it could give me until I went through cancer. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, at least, especially if they come from a recreational world, like, you know, don't quite comprehend that. And it really is, for me, it was the antithesis uh, in almost every aspect to opiates, uh, whereas opiates unplug you from life and make you passive and sort of zone you out. Cannabis just for me, at least plugged me right back in and got me helped to get me back interested in the things that I had been interested in finding joy in the things that I, I had found joy in and was really, um, uh, I mean, it saved my life. It was life changing. So since you've been using cannabis, have you had any of the symptoms of what you were dealing with previously? Uh, I, so the, the stomach issues, I eventually, uh, many years after it started, kind of figured that out. Um, and so by the time I tried uh, medical cannabis, that was no longer an issue. But my nerve impingement problems uh, absolutely were, and, and all my pain recovering from surgery. And so, yeah, I mean, I, as it turned out, and I've come to learn this better now, um, there, there is issues that arise from people taking opiates for, uh, for chronic use for uh, kind of undiagnosed or un understood muscle pain. And so as I began to, to ingest cannabis and was able to get myself off all the opiates, um, I, one, became more active, uh, which helped clear out some of my, especially my nerve issues. Um, the other thing is the opiates were causing, uh, at a certain point, they be began to cause a lot more pain than they had helped with. So the combination of finding pain relief with cannabis and then that allowing me to move my body more and get off opiates, um, you know, I, I live today with I, what is relatively little pain compared to what it was. I definitely have moments, uh, especially with my the nerve impingement thing. Um, you know, I think, I think I still have scar tissues from the surgeries, but for the most part, um, I, I am healed. And we have a lot of people who are using medical cannabis to to either stop their uses of usage of opiates or lower it. Um, and a lot of them have been doing it with success. For you, do you can you recall what the timeline was that you were able to actually 
remove opiates from your regimen through cannabis? Like how long that took? Yeah, I would say four to six months. I, I mean, I, I was ready to be done. I was ready to be, uh, you know, really start my healing journey. I was ready to get my life back before I started cannabis. So when I found pain relief from that, where I had from opiates, uh, I really quickly just started getting myself off. Uh, it might have even been sooner than, than the four to six months. Um, and then I would say for me, it was, it was, I think a lot easier for, uh, for people that I hear about because I was so ready to be done and because, uh, cannabis provided me with the the physical relief that I really needed. Yeah. I think it's, it's important for our listeners to know that as much as you were, you worked very quickly to be off of it, that you still took your time because it's not something that happens overnight. It's a gradual change because your body does become dependent on the opiates. Um, and that, and that's not easy as people struggle with that. Absolutely. And, and I, I didn't really give a context of time, but by the time I began to get off of opiates, I believe it had been eight, eight or nine years of steady and very heavy usage. I mean, I was taking, you know, uh, Hundreds of mill uh, towards the end, hundreds of milligrams of uh, oxycotton and oxycodone at the time. But throughout my experience, it had been, you know, fentanyl patches and lollipops. It was just when I look back on it, and, and now that I'm out of it, 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 really an absurd amount. And so it absolutely took time, and I, and I uh, did it on my own. So I did it in a way that that I felt comfortable. I feel like for some people. Uh, having a timeline in which, uh, you know, especially, you know, you're going through years of issues and then quickly taking something away and a timeline that, that a doctor that isn't in your body is dictating can be an issue. And so uh, I, I felt like my ability to do that for myself made it actually a pretty gentle and easy, uh, I shouldn't say easy, but like a gentle and, um, you know, relatively painless, transition. I mean, I really did it, uh, you know, I just cut it back by a little bit every, every few days or every week. And then, um, I remember when I got off of it completely, I thought, well, this for this next week, if I have any withdrawal symptoms, I'll just, every time I feel anything, I will just smoke. And if I don't remember this week, that's probably a good thing. And, <laughs> and that was that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't even imagine being years. I know for myself, um, I had stage three colon cancer. And so they did a resectioning of my colon and they, they gave me Norco, which is not the high octane opiates like you were using. But even after using them for two weeks and taking myself off of them, and this was before I really understood how cannabis would help me with that. Um, the side effects were crazy. And I'm a person that in my early 20s, they told me, you have asthma and you have to stop smoking cigarettes. And I, I just stopped, which people say is difficult. Yeah. Opiates were way harder. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's different for everybody. And I, for me, like I said, it was, it was relatively painless. And I don't know exactly why that is. It, it probably has something to do with my body chemistry and my my mindset going in because I, I was so done um and i also think you know i mean i really i had been taking opiates for all these years and i and i definitely developed a dependency issue but i had been taking them for pain relief and that never really 
changed. Um, and so when I found that relief in a different form, uh, uh, mentally it was easy to be like, well, these don't help. And I actually think, and, and they've made my life worse and this helps and it's making my life better. And, and so I think that, you know, mentally it was, it was easy for me to deal with uh, any side effect, any side effects that I was going to have, especially because of how, how long I had been on and how just so sick of being on the medication that I was. Yeah. Well, when you're done, you're done. You know, I know for me, like I, yeah. I, I was done, but the restless legs and, and the, the things that were manifesting in my body were so hard and, and actually using cannabis to help with that. I was, I was amazed at, at how well it worked. And then working with people who are, who are going through it where they had been using um, opiates for a much longer period of time because of their issues. It was, it's, it's, um, it's, it's very educating it's very educating, and I'm really glad that now we're looking at opiates in a different way. There's there's a need for them, but not as much as what they were doing, and certainly not to the extent that people were doing it in the high volume of opiates. So it's it's funny. It's like in some ways, it's like you don't want to demonize it because there are people who actually need it, but most people there are safer alternatives for managing pain, like cannabis. Absolutely, and I, and I think it's extremely important to recognize that it does have medical usage, and and you know, for some it's it's chronic, and for some it's acute. But I mean, you know, I I feel like if I if if I went to a doctor today and they tried to and they tried to put me on the amount of opiates that they put me on as quickly as they did, like I, I could either sue that doctor or you know get have them lose their license. I mean, it was just it was. Uh, insane the ramping up was just uh i I feel like it was you know so negligent and and it might have just been naive uh because i I feel like the medical world looked at opiates differently back then um but uh uh, there's no way that would happen today i don't think no no actually that's uh, an awesome thing Oh, it's so good. I find that the opposite is happening. People who have been on large amounts of opiates for extended times are now finding that their doctors are starting to cut them off. Um, and and I and I work yeah. with yeah and I work with a a, med, a pain physician who actually helps wean people off of it. And now that they're understanding a little better that cannabis can play a part in it, it's. It's it's a much I don't know if I would say pleasant, but it's it's a much more manageable experience than it was previously, um, and then you know kind of shifting from that when when did you start considering actually growing on a craft scale for the public or or did you start with medicinal or did you start with um, recreational with your, your cannabis growing? Um, well, I, my, my journey was definitely, yeah, my journey definitely started as medical. Um, like I said, I got my first plant, um, when I, when I made my first purchase, uh, in late 2009. So, uh, back then it was, you know, absolutely medical. Uh, the laws were a lot different. And at that time in Colorado, you could be a caregiver if you, if you wanted, and you could grow for other people and they, uh, you know, over the next three or four or five years, kind of ramp that down from being a, a viable option. But at the time, um, once I once I found relief uh, from my issues with cannabis, I realized how legitimate this was. 
and uh, I, you know, the, just the therapeutic value of growing it became what I, I put my energy and focus into and, and realized, um, you know, that there would be a, a, a high demand for uh, like a craft, uh, high quality uh, uh, product and that, you know, it was a particular set of skills. And if I could learn that, that, that could turn into a career for me. I mean, I had spent almost my entire 20s uh, you know, uh, in a medical and opiate funk and, and for a number of years, you know, pretty much just in bed. Um, so I had, didn't really have any career path or skills, so to speak of. And, and, uh, the thought of going back to school was really at that point daunting. So, uh, when I saw a future, uh, in cannabis, I really, um, and I mean, this was, you know, really early on, probably to early 2010, I really just embraced that and, and jumped on that and spent, uh, put all my energy and focus towards that. Are there any growers in particular that you were inspired by or, or um, people who instruct in growing? Because there, there are so many great books out there, um, but there are, there are, it seems like there are a few masters that really are able to teach people. Yeah, uh, you know, I, 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 I bought the, book, the books that I could at the time. Um, let's see, I, there was a Jorge Cervantes, the medical... Uh, Grower's Guide to uh, Medical Bible. You know, Jorge Cervantes has a, a very famous book a series about that. Um, I think I had one by Mel Thomas, and then and there was, uh, yeah, I think those are the two main ones. But really, I, I mostly followed Jorge Cervantes, um, his book, but, but I quickly sort of, I, I read a lot before I really had access uh, to, to growing on any sort of scale. I mean, I had one plant, and a tiny light. Um, so I sort of got the feel for it uh, with the basic information and then just uh, found my own way after that. Certainly, I've, there have been some people that have helped me along the way. Uh, Scott from Nectar for the Gods uh, was a really big help and uh, inspiration. And, uh, but other than, that, you know, other than that, for the, for the most part, it was uh, trial and error for me. Outdoor versus indoor. What are your thoughts? Um, I think, you know, from a personal perspective, it's whatever you can do the best at, uh, and, you, and that's within your budget and that you find uh, joy in. Some people love growing outdoors. Um, they like being outside. They like, you know, the kind of play of nature. They live in a, maybe they live in a place with good soil and good access to soil. Uh, I, I know certainly here in Colorado, if you're going to plant your plants directly in the ground, it could be very challenging. Um, some people like to do it indoors. I, I worked uh, for a few years at, at an indoor gardening store or gardening store grow shop, and we had this one customer that was like, I don't like going outside. I, I call myself a great indoorsman, <laughs> and he really liked growing in, inside. Yeah, so... Um, you know, I'm not going to be, I, I, I try to be not judgmental uh, with how people like to grow. Um, you know, I certainly have uh, techniques and, and uh, morals and values that I follow, and, and I will be uh, not so keen on, on deviating from those. And, you know, for example, using uh, toxic pesticides and, and certain growth practices, which are just uh, or, or additives which are, you know, bad for consumption and bad for the planet. But in terms of, you know, indoor, outdoor, hydroponic soil, all that stuff, it, it's, you know, if you find 
I, I think that that's great. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the other side of that is, you know, some places are certainly better suited for one than the other. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one of the issues we're running into, where I live in Colorado now, I've grown a few outdoor plants, but there's hemp, uh, you know, within, I don't know where, but there's hemp, you know, within probably 10 or 15 miles. So anything that I grow has some seeds in it. Uh, and, and anybody that grows in this part of Colorado outdoors that I've talked to has that same problem. Some of it's pretty bad. So, you know, you can't really grow the way you would like outdoors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the cross-pollination thing is fascinating, especially with how, I mean, it's, I think that it's going to be a whole new ball game, like when more and more people start to grow, when hemp starts to grow even more, um, how how we're going to be planting out crops in certain areas to make sure that we don't get too much of that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you had a large outdoor grove uh, operation and somebody got hemp on it and made like an adjoining property or you're downwind of a hemp farm, um, I you know, I, that, that would probably ruin your crop. Um, and uh, I think that that's going to be a big issue in certain places coming up. I think as the hemp industry matures and there's access to things like uh, large-scale access to things like clones and feminized seeds, we'll see that begin to disappear in some places, especially people that are growing for CBD on scale. You know, they're going to want female plants. Um, but right now, it's, you know, that, that infrastructure is not in place and, and there are problems. Mm-hmm. Um, going to... Your company, Alpenstash, when did that start? And, and I believe you said that you started that with your wife. Uh, yeah, so actually I started it with uh, my best friend. And, and now um, since we started in uh, 2014 is when we got our license. And then since about 2016, um, my, uh, she was my fiance at the time. Um, you know, it, it was just me and her that began ran, running it. Um, so since then it's just been... You know, us that run it, uh, we have a couple of employees. Uh, and really, so I got started in the industry in 2010 and never started out wanting to own my own business. Um, and But I, I wanted to grow uh, in the way that, that I thought was good and, and in a way that was quality-focused and in a way that at the end of the day I felt good about everything I did, uh, especially from a, you know, consumer standpoint, wanting to provide the consumer with the best possible product. Uh, I found that the jobs I was able to get, uh, they did not jive with that mindset. And so I realized that the only way I could do what I want, use my powers for uh, for good, as I saw it, was to start, start my own thing. So uh, my buddy Evan and I worked for uh, three or four years to get Alpenstash up and running. Uh, we were licensed in 2014, began growing in 2015, uh, really dedicated to to craft cannabis um, from the get-go. I mean, this is our, this is this is my passion. This is everybody that works with and for for uh, my wife and I. It's their passion, uh, and um, you know, we just strive to create the best possible best possible cannabis we can uh, using the most ethical ways uh, we know how, uh, offering uh, novel and unique genetics, and uh, really. You know, I mean, it's it's the pursuit of, uh, for us, it's the pursuit of perfection that, that keeps us going. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand how much care and work comes from the flowers that they purchase at the dispensaries. We, we become really 
um, unattached to that because we're so used to seeing it, you know, packaged, dried in our edibles. Um, and I think it, it, it is something that people should be mindful about, especially with, um, with their growers as far as what they're, what they stand behind, what they're, um, how'd you say it? I'm at, I, I just drew a blank there, but basically your values around growing and, and prefacing yeah. this with, just like you said before, everybody has their own way of doing it. But for Alpenstash, what are, what are your values and, and what are, what's important to you with the grow? Uh, yes. I mean, you know, quality, you know, whether that's hand trimming, uh, glass curing, um, we actually ship two dispensaries in, in the glass jars that we cure and we cure everything in uh, 64 ounce mason jars. You know, we, we burp and finish by hand. Uh, we hand water. Um, you know, we, it, for us, it starts with uh, what goes into our plants. So the nutrients we use are uh, small batch, batch crafted in Eugene, Oregon, nectar for the gods. They made out of rainwater. Uh, they're enzymatically chelated natural uh, fertilizers, things like bone meal, um, fish bone meal, uh, you know, crab and shrimp meal and things like that. They've actually been broken down through a natural process as opposed to um, synthetic nutrients, which are made available for plant uptake using heavy metals and and pretty gnarly uh, processes. These are actually, you know, essentially pre-digested for the plants uh, using heat pressure and um, the product that comes out of compost, uh, hemic and fulvic acid. And, and so starts with good inputs uh, from people that, that care about what they're doing. Uh, we also use agriculture biologics. Uh, they have beneficial bacteria, and um, they go through uh, extraordinary measures to source the most ethical, uh, sustainable, and cleanest uh, and organic uh, bases that they can for their products. Um, and then so, you know, that, that's where we're starting from. And then we just do the same thing all the way up the chain. I mean, you know, we, everything we do is by hand. Everything we do is with uh, love and intent and uh, quality focused. How long do you cure your flowers? Uh, we cure our flowers uh, anywhere from two to three weeks all the way up to uh, a couple of months. It, it often depends on uh, the dispensary too. So we, you know, we ship our product in glass, so it's, it's pretty shelf stable. So we, and unfortunately, this is where our uh, control on, on the chain sort of breaks. But, you know, it depends on what they do with it uh, when they get it. So we've, we've actually started working with, uh, really focusing on working with dispensaries that, that treat our products the way that they should. Um, and, you know, we want them to be treated. In Colorado, there's still the vast majority of, of the market still is you walk into a dispensary, there's, uh, jars, you know, behind the display case. And, um, you know, when you buy something, it comes out of that jar. There's not, we haven't really embraced the pre weighed out, pre packaged, um, product, uh, which is good in some senses because a lot of people, uh, can, can package in, in subpar, uh, conditions, but it, it can be, uh, detrimental. You know, if, if a dispensary, we've had issues where people, you know, dispensaries pick up our product and, immediately put it into plastic, plastic bags, uh, and then it sits there until it gets sold. 
Uh, yeah, that's that's one of the things about legalization in California that's broken my heart. I really, I, I worked behind the bar for many years, um, and I still pop back there from time to time because you never stop learning. But one of the things I enjoyed the most was being able to let people smell that jar and then actually weigh out the flowers from that jar. They just, it. the one thing I feel like we need to really educate policymakers on is about quality products and how they remain quality um, because having them in the plastic isn't the best. Um, and, I, and it's also, you know, when you have the smell jars that are getting stale and people don't, you know, they're smelling that, but so they're kind of dubious about, is this going to be what I'm taking home then? You know, and, and also just even going along with like in California because of the way we are with our policies and it's made it much more difficult for craft growers to actually exist. What is that looking like in Colorado? Yeah, so I mean, I know California, when they began, was really uh, trying to embrace the craft growers. And then from what I understand, they, uh, the big corporations and special interests really quickly came in and even went county by county and really threw their weight around to get the laws in their favor. Um, in Colorado, you know, you can still definitely be a craft uh, company, and there are a few of us. But, uh, you know, I mean, just like in any other industry, uh, you have people with uh, a lot of money and a huge bankroll, and they come in, you know, consolidate and try to put people out of business and swap the competition. And, you know, really, you know, we're uh, a very small company. We're a very small grow, and, you know, we, we don't have anywhere near the budget or, you know, the marketing or, or, you know, capabilities or anything like, you know, that some of these really big corporations have. So, uh, you know, I, I say that it's, it's, you can still be a craft grower, but you have to actually be a craft grower. You, you know, if you're getting in here, uh, you know, if you're trying to have, have a limited budget and all you're trying to produce is quantity, you're going to get uh, very quickly, you're going to be in, in trouble. Um, but if you are really, uh, really know what you're doing and you can really offer a craft product, I think there's, there's absolutely still room. And, and the model that I look at is, uh, is alcohol, you know, both beer and now we're seeing, uh, increasingly more with, with spirits as well. Um, but, you know, craft beer is huge here in Colorado, and you have uh, in some cities, um, the one that I live in, for example, you know, we have a lot of uh, in national and international craft breweries, but just a lot of breweries in general. And, you know, I've just within the last year gotten into the craft beer, and, and, you know, one of the things that that's fun to do is you go from brewery to brewery, and if it's good, you know, you'll go there. So they don't really compete against, you know, against each other, they're all, uh, I think there's plenty of room for people, but, um, you know, it, you got to have a good product. You got to know what you're doing and you got to have that attention to detail. Um, and, you know, as somebody that, that owns one of these or, or, or works for one of these facilities or, or one like ours, like you've got to have uh, passion and love and dedication. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, the the craft growers are where all the very interesting cultivars of flowers are coming from. Um, I feel like as we start, the public starts to get more educated, um, it, it'll go back to favoring more of the craft growers. I think as medical patients, in some ways, we were a little bit spoiled because it was all really small craft growers for the most part. And now that we've gotten into legalization, we have larger growers that 
the quality isn't necessarily as good as what we saw before, um, some better than others. But going back to what you're saying as far as like with beer, you know, I think a lot of people these days are smoking the equivalent of Coors and eventually they'll they'll see, you know, that there's and, and I'm from Michigan. So when I think about microbreweries, I think of like Bell's Brewery. Um, they'll be wanting more something like Bell's, especially when they do things like travel to Colorado and have access to more craft growing, um, because now you see a lot of a lot of standard flowers that are being available and you're missing so i remember like some really dramatic flowers back in the day like when like blueberry yum yums was around or we had a we had a woman who grew for herself for her asthma um she used she had uh, something called cali widow so it was a cali orange white widow cross and because you know she's a personal grower when we get into legalization things like that were no longer available and they were you know, she brought us in like a pound a month. And so people knew exactly when it was coming in and they would use it for things like their asthma or migraines. So they'd make a special trip to try to score some of that. Um, and, and actually going into cultivars, what are, tell me about some of the ones that you work with. Um, are they ones that you actually created yourself? Um, I, I saw that you had some really interesting indicas. I'm an indica person myself, but you know, of course, there will be sativa lovers listening as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, to to get to y- your first point, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we we have seen a decline. I I, I know that Cali has. Uh, it's interesting having these conversations because we had a, a totally different uh, trajectory in Colorado. In uh, sometime in 2010, they sort of axed. Uh, they began to ax. Um, uh, the access of, of what were caregivers at that time's uh, ability to sell to the market uh, for the medical market and um, and a dispensary had to vertically integrate and start growing for themselves. So really for for us, the access to, to like really true quality, uh, unique uh, genetics and all that stuff really declined sharply at that time in 2010. I know for, for you guys, it, it, it's been around a, a lot longer. Um, so since, since then we, we've actually seen, that's where we started seeing, uh, consolidation begin, uh, in the market in Colorado. And by the time recreational rolled around, I was really, there was really, you know, a few big players that were already established and sort of snapping that up. And with that, you know, you really, as you said, you really do see a switch. Uh, if you're a quantity focused producer, you know, you're going to produce the flower that's the easiest to grow. Uh, and produces the most, and really, that's you know kind of the opposite of, of a craft mindset. And you see that with produce of all types. I mean, you know, tomatoes are, are a great example. Uh, you know, every commercial ag company that grows tomatoes pretty much grows the same type of tomato, and you really lose a lot of flavors and variety. Um, so uh, what we, we, we what we've done actually is uh, we focused on creating our own genetics. Um, we do work with. A few uh, cultivars that we didn't uh, create, um, and uh, there are some that we really, really like. Uh, but we, you know, I'd say about 90% of what we produce is our own cultivars, and we've really, you know, uh, focused on genetics that we like. A lot of them, uh, at least one of the parents is, you know, what is now like an old school or classic strain, like a blueberry, or, you know, we do a lot of chem. Uh, chem4 and chem dog genetics 
Um, you know, we, we've used white rhino uh, in breeding a bunch, and so we really like to focus on that. There is uh, absolutely some of the new cutting-edge, new-school genetics hype strains are, are really, some of them are really nice, and, and, and quite frankly, at this point, I'm really, really bored of a number of them uh, in their current form, and everybody seems to grow, you know I mean? Uh, Girl Scout cookies are now even kind of disappearing, but when that when that was a hit, like, you know, it was like everybody tried to grow it, and you'd go in the dispensary, and it'd just be, you know, Girl Scout cookies. And so, um, you know, now, so we try to, if we're going to grow something like that, we try to make it ours and make it unique and individual. And, you know, for example, we just, we just have one that uh, we just finished flowering the first run of called Integrity Cookies. It's a cross of Girl Scout cookies with our uh, original cultivar Lemmy Winks. Uh, and then Lemmy Winks is a cross of what was sort of at that time a newer genetic crouching tiger hidden alien with uh, uh, old school white rhino. And so we really, you know, focus on what we like. And again, a lot of that is uh, the older stuff and even, uh, you know, the heirloom landbound strains. Uh, for example, now we're, and that specifically we're working with uh, uh, sativa from Mexico, from Oaxaca. Uh, and, and we've got a lot of things like that in the works that we're really looking towards uh, introducing some of the really, truly old school stuff. Um, the Crouching Tiger Hidden Alien, what's that across of? So that is uh, Tiger's Milk and Starfighter. That was originally, uh, that was that was bred by Exotic Genetics. And that was actually one of our first uh, cultivars that we brought into the warehouse when we started um, by that time, everything was tracked seed to sale. And so every plant, every clone that we got had to come from another licensed facility. So we had to bring everything in from other licensed facilities. And because we're so obsessed with cleanliness and because we're so obsessed with, um, you know, keeping things healthy and, and clean and, and really good genetics, we only brought in a few an initial different cultivars. And from, then, from there, we just sort of bred with them to create what we currently grow. That's great. And when you're looking at Mexican genetics, are you looking at land races then? Yeah. So these would be, you know, uh, uh, any, any of the heirloom stuff that will grow, um, you know, whether it's from Afghanistan or Pakistan or Mexico or, you know, I mean, there's tons of places, uh, you know, Thailand, there's even some from China and, and things like that. Uh, they are uh, generally considered uh, land-bound races. You know, they, they're specific cultivars that have been grown in a, in a given area isolated from other genetic interference for, you know, hundreds, sometimes even thousands of thousands of years. Yeah, I I think that it's wonderful that some of these land races are starting to come back because I always have to explain to people that by and large what we're looking at are hybrids because of the way they're bred and that nowadays when we look at, you know, indica or to sativa, we're really looking at that to illustrate the spectrum of feel, not that that's truly what they are. Um, but it's, it's exciting to hear that you're doing some more with like true land races. Um, what are some of your favorite flowers? Uh, you know, I'm so, you know, we focus on, on growing what we like and it's really hard for me to pick because, you know, we've, I've bred all of them. Um, so I mean, some, some of my, uh, if I, if I had to pick a few of my favorites, uh, the Lemmy Winks is, is uh, awesome. Emperor's Breath is great. Um, Cookie Confundo is that's sort of a new one for us. It's been around for a couple of years. That's one of uh, our favorites. And 
uh, one of the new one, a couple of the new ones, Integrity Cookies, has turned out fantastic. And then uh, we have one, uh, Orange Chemsicle, which is a, like an orange. Uh, the mom strain is a, is a cultivar called Donatello. Um, and then the father is uh, a chem heavy strain that, that we created called Moxie Dog. And so it's really like an orange chem uh, terpene profile. Ooh, that so that, that one's wonderful. great. But I mean, I really like, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, what was that? Oh, I just said that sounds wonderful. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, that one, you know, one of the things that's, that's always fun with genetics is, uh, especially if you're just, there's, you know, a couple of different styles of breeding. One is that you have sort of an end, end cross in mind, an end flower in mind, whether it's how it looks or smells or tastes or the effects or grows or whatever those things, and you breed towards that goal and that vision. Another one is you just sort of, you know, randomly cross uh, a mom and a dad and, and see what happens, and, and both of those are really fun. And occasionally, you know, this orange... Chemsicle is one, and the Emperor's Breath is another example of this, where we just, you know, like, ah, oh, let's just see what happens. We have no idea. Roll the dice, and they, they both turn out, uh, turned out amazing, and that's a really, uh, it's like a mystery of what you're going to get until you're done flowering, and um, super stoked with the Orange Chemsicle. Yeah, it's got to be, well, it's when I, as soon as I asked you the question about your favorite, it's like, it, well, hearing you describe them too, it's got to be hard to choose a favorite amongst your babies because, you know, that that's what they are. Um, but when you're looking at like THC levels or just like cannabinoid counts and ratios, what do you tend to veer more towards? What do you value? Um, I personally, uh, you know, it kind of all comes into play, you know, I I. I I, in general, would steer away from the higher THC strains. I, I certainly uh, enjoy more of a cannabinoid selection and, and a presence of and terpene uh, selection. You know, one of my favorite uh, cultivars that I, that I didn't grow or breed um, is just an old-school blueberry. It's nothing, you know, it's, the potency isn't, you know, knock you out immediately, but it just it smells great, tastes great, and you can just, you know, maintain uh, whatever mindset you want to be all day, depending on your, you know, usage amount. So we, a lot of our cultivars do tend to be high THC, but that's not what we breed uh, with end goal in mind. We certainly have a whole selection of CBD-rich cultivars and ratios. Uh, that's beginning to, to get traction in the Colorado market, but traditionally, uh, especially with, you know, a tourist-heavy industry and it, so novel people wanted that THC number, and so uh, really behind uh, as a market in terms of you know selection of other cannabinoids, uh, especially you know CBD ratios or even CBD dominant. Um, but you know now that's kind of coming on as is people uh, looking to experience other uh, cannabinoids, you know CBG, CBN, CBC, things like that. Uh, so. You know, as as growers, you know, you're growing a plant and, and you don't know what the cannabinoid is going to be, the profile is going to be like till you get to the end. And so that certainly plays a part in what we're looking for. But just the overall, you know, kind of everything uh, of the plant is, is what we really like, you know, how it, how it grows, how it looks, how it smells, um, you know, and, and the other side of that is it's very subjective to what people are looking for. So yeah, we kind of try to grow a wide spectrum and uh, have something for everybody. 
Yeah, I think that a lot of it has to do with educating the public, too, because one of the things I've noticed, especially, is there are people who get really caught up in the THC percentage. And I always have to tell them, you know, THC doesn't actually always equate to strength because I've had things that have been in the high 20s that have actually been functional but really good for pain management. And I've had things that are like 13% that have blown my mind. So turning people on to full spectrum, also just the fact that terpenes are so very important for that spectrum of feel as well. Um, And you know, that that in a lot of ways, like I always tell people to follow their nose because what appeals to their nose most often will work really well with their bodies. It kind of goes back to aromatherapy in many ways. Yeah, actually, that's uh, it's funny that you say that specific thing because that was the advice I got the first time I ever walked into a dispensary in 2009 was to follow your nose. And that's the best advice I've ever received. And I, I give that advice uh, all the time to this day. Um, And the other thing is, I mean, I I spend a significant amount of my time, I feel like uh, having that THC does not equate potency talk. And it's really, it's unfortunate. It's, you know, so often, uh, you know, cannabis is related to alcohol. And and in an alcohol, you can definitely have the strength based on the alcohol percentage. Um, and, And I think that that's an easy to digest thing that appeals to people, but it really isn't the case with cannabis. And, and in fact, um, you know, I've had, you know, I've tried stuff that's, you know, in the high 20s that just tasted horrible and smelled like hay and was, you know, barely caught a buzz from it. Uh, and then just like you said, things that are way less, uh, you know, have a way smaller THC number that are just, you know, pushing into outer space. And then the other side of all that is, is that when you have a market that is driven because of potency uh, and that's due to misinformation, uh, you have the ability for people to fudge test results and, um, you know, either, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it, but I've certainly seen flour uh, for sale that tests, you know, above 40%, and, and that's just a flat-out, uh, you know, impossibility. And so, you know, it leads one to believe, think, like, are they putting hash in there with the flour? And then really nobody wins in that scenario. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I think it's a it's a function of the end of prohibition. You know, people wanting what they perceive as the biggest thing for the buck, and it's just also kind of every you know this is all a function of a, an educated uh, consumer base that's emerging, and people are beginning to understand, you know, what quality quality product is. That first of all, you have access to is you know subpar cannabis, then you're going to think that that's all there is, and it takes time. To, you know, not knowledge. Uh, you know, education and, and time and experience to really understand uh, what a good, you know, what good flower is, what good extracts are, and the things to look for. Yeah, yeah, I I find too, and, and you know, it's like I I preface this with the the senior population are actually some of my most favorite people to work with, but especially like we'll get I'll sometimes get people in, and it's it's usually a guy. <laughs> And they're like, sweetie, I've been smoking longer than you've been living. And, you know, I'm in my 40s. So I just I I always kind of laugh. And I'm like, well, you you may be, but it depends on what you're smoking. If you're smoking Boone, your brickweed, I mean, you know, that's I can I can't say to a sommelier that's much younger than me that I've been, you know, that I drank Boone's Farm 
you know, as a kid in a closet with my friends. And that makes me more qualified to have the conversation about wine quality. You know, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting thing to, because it is really emotional too. And you don't want to talk down to people, but you do want to redirect them in a way to find things that work really well with their bodies. Absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've definitely experienced those people. And then, you know, I've also experienced, you know, the people that, you know, my parents' age, which is, in, you know, in their mid, you know, mid-70s that had access to a lot of good stuff uh, back in the day. And they've been searching for something of that quality again. And that's also the other, you know, kind of the other side of that story is, you know, I had this one guy in particular, very snobby, um, you know, and plenty of experience to back that up in terms of quality. But he would go from dispensary to dispensary and, you know, buy their most expensive product that the bud tender recommended and he just always called me up and be like yeah i spent 25 dollars a gram and i didn't even get high Ugh. and you know then it was interesting to see it from that side too um and then you know and then you have the other people that that smoked that are that age and that smoked you know decent amount uh, back in the day and now you know the class thing you hear is i can't smoke today's cannabis because it just gets me too high <laughs> that's so true usually if somebody says that to me um, I recommend a three to one ratio of CBD to THC. And when they'll smoke it, they're like, this is what I remember. And, and I totally get like, we're yeah. talking about the person who's a little bit more snobby. It's like when you find something that works for them, just seeing the joy on their face because they have that high standard is like, I, that, that makes my day. Yeah. That, that's actually one of the, one of the times I, I remember where I could be like, you know, well, maybe I can actually do this uh, as a career was when this particular gentleman, I, I brought him something I had grown in my basement. And he said, you know, wow, this is amazing. Um, this is way better than anything I can buy. And it's like, well, if you, you know, you're going, your kind of hobby is to go from dispensary to dispensary. And that was definitely a confidence booster and, you know, made me think that, you know, maybe this is attainable. What are your what are your future plans for Alpenstash? Or do you do you visualize anything as far as growth or different thing, projects that you'd like to work on? Yeah, so actually we uh, started the process of expanding a little bit. We have a, a unit next door become available. Uh, we are going to we we are building that out. However, uh, COVID nineteen kind of swooped in and put a halt to anything happening in a timely manner, especially when, you know, city permits need to be issued and that requires cities to be open. So uh, we're still absolutely pursuing that, but it's at even more of a snail's pace than these things already tend to be. Um, so that's our, you know, our, our first kind of goal is, you know, significant expansion. We've been uh, more or less the same size since 2014 and, you know, finally, uh, seeing some, uh, you know, form of, of commercial success and increased commercial viability. So looking to expand, certainly, uh, you know, I, I, I have a lot of pipe dreams. My wife is, is very uh, much more realistic, so really good balance that way. But I, you know, dream about one day nationalization, uh, legalizing, you know, nationally with national distribution. Uh, again, the model I, I always come back to are the tiny craft breweries and distilleries around here that, you know, are available in select uh, liquor stores across the country. And some of them, even, even though they're, they're kind of getting bigger at this point, but some of them are international. Uh, that, that really would be something that would be great. And then, you know, the other facet of that would be an in-house uh, 
uh, solventless extract, uh, production of solventless extract at some point. Um, who knows when that will be? Uh, you know, we're, we're definitely taking things one step at a time, and that that vision has certainly slowed down uh, since COVID-19, but we're still chugging forward. I'm piggybacking on on the COVID nineteen issue. Uh, what are you are you you're still able to cultivate? And I know in California we have well, it depends from um, county to county, but by and large, they're seeing um, cannabis as an essential business. What are you seeing in Colorado? Uh, we are absolutely an essential business, and it's actually a funny story. Um, we, uh, my wife has a friend whose husband uh, is the head of uh, one of the branches of the local government, you know, of the Colorado government in Denver and works directly under the governor. And so we had a heads up, you know, it's Denver, uh, he told us, you know, Denver's going to do a lockdown. So, uh, you know, this was back in, I don't even remember anymore, it's all blending together. But I think probably early April when this was, you know, first starting to happen, um, late March. And so, we tuned in, tuned in the news, and you know we we had heard that in other places um, cannabis was considered essential, and we thought for sure it was going to be here too. And the mayor of Denver came on and said, you know, shelter in place order, you know, everybody's on lockdown, and you know all these are essential businesses, and liquor stores and retail cannabis are not uh, essential businesses, and they will be closed starting tomorrow. And my wife and I just looked at each other and we're like, oh no. You know, Denver's obviously a significant portion of our market, and this is just bad news for the rest of the state, for our industry. Uh, but what was funny is, predictably, uh, anybody that was paying attention rushed out to the nearest dispenser and liquor store, and lines formed, and it, there was such an outroar that a few hours later, the mayor came back on and said, no, actually, you know, we reassessed this, and now liquor and retail cannabis are considered essential. So we... We initially had that scare, and then it all, uh, they got rescinded, and so, yeah, the cannabis industry and cannabis businesses are considered essential here. Oh, that's good. I mean, that's, you know, pain knows no holiday. We have a lot of people who do rely on their medicine, and I'm, I'm wondering, too, on a, you know, on a government level, if this is really going to help regulators understand the importance that cannabis plays um, with their constituents and their constituents that vote. That's, that's what I'm really wondering about because here in California with all the issues with taxation and a lot, of, I mean, there are some, there are some great things that happen with legalization largely like with testing having to be, you know, mandatory, I think is awesome. But there are a lot of things that have created a lot of unnecessary problems for people and heartache on the side of the consumer, especially for our most critically ill patients that live on fixed incomes. So, you know, when I have people visit and they're upset about the prices or what's available, one of the things I always tell them is, you know, we really need as a public to be active because the people who are making these decisions, a lot of them get voted in by us. So we need to let people know that, you know, not only do are we productive citizens, but we vote. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's interesting here because medical, even even when initially Denver came out and said that, that uh, recreational cannabis and liquor stores weren't essential, Medical was going to remain open the whole time, but there was such an outpour 
over just general access, uh, you know, not only for those that, that, you know, don't have a medical card, but they use it for medical reasons. But, I mean, this is one of the most stressful, if not the most stressful time, you know, in generations and certainly in a lot of people's lives. And, you know, the thought of being cooped up at home without access to anything that you find uh, that you use as a stress relief, you know, or just an escape or, you know, whatever it does for you, I think is, you know, to me that's, it's, it's really interesting that, you know, they created a policy and there was such an outpour against, you know, that policy that they changed it so quickly. And that policy is to like, you know, I mean, if you're going to be home for 30 days and in front of the TV, like, and you're not going to be able to get stoned, uh, that's almost as hard for people, some people as those that, you know, truly need it for medicine. And um, I think that this really is going to be a, a policy shift. It's, it's super, it's always been crazy that, you know, one state in North, East or West of Colorado and, you know, what your, your average Colorado uh, consumer does on a daily basis would be a felony. Um, that's already a crazy juxtaposition. But then you add on top of that, that now we're considered essential along with, you know, pharmacies and doctors. And it's really, I mean, this is, you know, seems to be a turning point, uh, especially in the national conversation of everything. And, uh, but, but you are absolutely right. And that is that, you know, we, as people and consumers have uh, a say, and that is with our vote. And I, I also, you know, believe that that extends to the companies and the businesses that operate whatever space you care about. You know, you, you vote with your, your actual vote, but you also vote with your dollars. Yeah, that's, that's completely, completely important. I mean, that's, that's paramount. Um, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up because we're getting this hour went by so fast. This was so great talking with you. But I wanted to. Um, what cities in Colorado are you available in? Uh, so that's uh, that's always changing. Uh, we we're small enough that you know every time we have a harvest, you know one or two or three stores can and have bought us out. So that's always changing. Uh, right now, you know at this exact moment, uh, we just had. Uh, uh, some folks down in Steamboat Springs uh, on the Western Slope scoop up a whole bunch. And then we had some folks in Northern Colorado and uh, Greenland, Fort Collins, uh, Smokies uh, scoop up a bunch too. So that's, so we're, you know, unfortunately for us, we're not really available locally uh, for this harvest, but, but that always changes. So uh, for people that are looking for us, Instagram is, is probably the best way. We, we definitely release drop information on there. Uh, and, and one other thing, uh, I just, uh, if I can just really quickly say is, you know, we're really big supporters of home growers and caregivers. And to that end, uh, we focus on being transparent and, and sharing our, our love and knowledge and passion of growing. So uh, people that are stuck at home uh, for however long you're going to be, you know, if you're ever thinking about trying to be self-reliant and growing your own, um, you know, we're, we're here to support you. We have YouTube videos, instructionals. Or we're very easily accessible for questions, and you know we're t- we want to support people's uh, ability to to grow their own. Danny, thank you for everything that you do for from growing your beautiful flowers to sharing your story to supporting other people who want to grow. Um, you're an amazing member of our community, and I really want to thank you for being on Planted today. And and hopefully, when you have some new projects, we can talk again, and maybe we can have your wife on too. 
Yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. Thank you so much for you know being a platform for you know uh, me to talk about what I'm super passionate about and other people as well. And you know, anytime you'd like to have us on for any other reason, I would we would love to be on. And uh, I certainly know my wife has a lot to say too. So. And um, I, that would I, probably be excellent. I saw that she likes hockey and being a Michigan girl, I, I totally get that. <laughs> yeah, she's, uh, my, my wife's from here, but she, uh, was a, a elite hockey player. So she spent uh, much of her formative years in, uh, Minnesota. So she's got that, that, uh, side of her too. Oh, right on. Yeah, I'm from the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, and NMU, uh, when I was going to school there, we were NCAA champs, so we were, we're pretty serious about it, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. She played college hockey. She was on the junior Olympic team. Uh, she's told me some a few stories from the UP. Oh, right on. Oh, very cool. I'll have to ask her about that when I talk to you both next. Thank you so much. Um, and for everybody out there, thank you for listening today. I know it's it's a crazy time. We're all, you know, doing the best that we can to manage it. Um, one thing I'll say that I, you know, say to my my patients and clients when they go through a hard time is remember the three Ps. Be positive. Be present be proactive, and I'll add to that, be kind. Thank you, everyone, and tune in next month. We'll have another amazing interview, and take care out there. Bye.